0: Chapter 9 of Mrs. Dalloway This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf Chapter 9 Elizabeth said she had forgotten her gloves. That was because Miss Kilman and her mother hated each other. She could not bear to see them together she ran upstairs to find her gloves. But Miss Kilman did not hate Mrs. Dalloway. Turning her large, gooseberry-colored eyes upon Clarissa, observing her small pink face, her delicate body, her air of freshness and fashion, Miss Kilman felt, fool, simpleton, you who have known neither sorrow nor pleasure, who have trifled your life away. And there rose in her an overmastering desire to overcome her, to unmask her. If she could have felt her it would have eased her. But it was not the body, it was the soul and its mockery that she wished to subdue, make feel her mastery. If only she could make her weep, could ruin her, humiliate her, bring her to her knees cry. You are right, but this was God's will, not Miss Kilman's. It was to be a religious victory. So she glared, so she glowered. Clarissa was really shocked. This is a Christian, this woman. This woman had taken her daughter from her. She in touch with invisible presences. Heavy, ugly, commonplace. Without kindness or grace, she know the meaning of life. You are taking Elizabeth to the stores, Mrs. Dalloway said. Miss Kilman said she was. They stood there. Miss Kilman was not going to make herself agreeable. She had always earned her living. Her knowledge of modern history was thorough in the extreme. She did, out of her meagre income, set aside so much for causes she believed in. Whereas this woman did nothing, believed nothing, brought up her daughter. But here was Elizabeth, rather out of breath, the beautiful girl. So they were going to the stores. Odd it was as miss kilman stood there and stand she did with the power and taciturnity of some prehistoric monster armoured for primeval warfare how second by second the idea of her diminished how hatred which was for ideas not people crumbled how she lost her malignity her size became second by second merely miss kilman in a mackintosh who heaven knows clarissa would have liked to help at this dwindling of the monster clarissa laughed saying good-bye she laughed off they went together miss kilman and elizabeth downstairs with a sudden impulse with a violent anguish for this woman was taking her daughter from her clarissa leant over the banisters and cried out remember the party remember our party tonight!" but elizabeth had already opened the front door there was a van passing she did not answer love and religion thought clarissa going back into the drawing-room tingling all over how detestable how detestable they are for now that the body of miss kilman was not before her it overwhelmed her the idea the cruelest things in the world she thought seeing them clumsy hot domineering hypocritical eavesdropping, jealous, infinitely cruel and unscrupulous, dressed in a Macintosh coat on the landing, love and religion. Had she ever tried to convert anyone herself? Did she not wish everybody merely to be themselves? And she watched out of the window, the old lady opposite climbing upstairs. Let her climb upstairs if she wanted to. Let her stop. Then let her, as Clarissa had often seen her, Gain her bedroom, part her curtains, and disappear again into the background. Somehow one respected that, that old woman looking out of the window, quite unconscious that she was being watched. There was something solemn in it, but love and religion would destroy that, whatever it was, the privacy of the soul. The odious Kilman would destroy it, yet it was a sight that made her want to cry. Love destroyed, too, everything that was fine everything that was true went. Take Peter Walsh now. There was a man, charming, clever, with ideas about everything. If he wanted to know about Pope, say, or Addison, or just to talk nonsense, what people were like, what things meant, Peter knew better than anyone. It was Peter who had helped her, Peter who had lent her books. But look at the woman he loved, vulgar, trivial, commonplace think of peter love he came to see her after all these years and what did he talk about himself horrible passion she thought degrading passion she thought thinking of kilman and her elizabeth walking to the army and navy stores big ben struck the half hour how extraordinary it was strange yes touching to see the old lady they had been neighbors ever so many years Move away from the window as if she were attached to that sound, that string, gigantic as it was, it had something to do with her, down, down into the mist of ordinary things. The finger fell, making the moment solemn. She was forced, so Clarissa imagined by that sound to move to go, but where Clarissa tried to follow her as she turned and disappeared, and could still just see her white cap moving at the back of the bedroom she was still there moving about at the other end of the room why creeds and prayers and mackintoshes when thought clarissa that's the miracle that's the mystery that old lady she meant whom she could see going from chest of drawers to dressing-table she could still see her and the supreme mystery which kilman might say she had solved or peter might say he had solved but Clarissa didn't believe either of them had the ghost of an idea of solving, it was simply this. Here was one room, there another. Did religion solve that, or love? Love. But here the other clock, the clock which always struck two minutes after Big Ben, came shuffling in with its lap full of odds and ends, which it dumped down as if Big Ben were all very well with His Majesty laying down the law so solemn, so just. But she must remember all sorts of little things besides. Mrs. Marsham, Ellie Henderson, glasses for ices, all sorts of little things came flooding and lapping, and dancing in on the wake of that solemn stroke which lay flat like a bar of gold on the sea. Mrs. Marsham, Ellie Henderson, glasses for ices, she must telephone now at once. Volubly? Troublously, the late clock sounded, coming in on the wake of Big Ben, with its lap full of trifles, beaten up, broken up by the assault of carriages, the brutality of vans, the eager advance of myriads of angular men, of flaunting women, the domes and spires of offices and hospitals, the last relics of this lap full of odds and ends seemed to break, like the spray of an exhausted wave. Upon the body of Miss Kilman standing still in the street for a moment, to mutter, It is the flesh. It was the flesh that she must control. Clarissa Dalloway had insulted her, that she expected, but she had not triumphed, she had not mastered the flesh. Ugly, clumsy Clarissa Dalloway had laughed at her for being that, and had revived the fleshly desires, for she minded looking as she did beside Clarissa nor could she talk as she did. But why wish to resemble her? Why? She despised Mrs. Dalloway from the bottom of her heart. She was not serious. She was not good. Her life was a tissue of vanity and deceit. Yet Doris Kilman had been overcome. She had, as a matter of fact, very nearly burst into tears when Clarissa Dalloway laughed at her. It is the flesh. It is the flesh, she muttered. It being her habit to talk aloud, trying to subdue this turbulent and painful feeling as she walked down Victoria Street. She prayed to God. She could not help being ugly. She could not afford to buy pretty clothes. Clarissa Dalloway had laughed, but she would concentrate her mind upon something else until she had reached the pillar box. At any rate, she had got Elizabeth. But she would think of something else. She would think of Russia until she reached the pillar-box. "'How nice it must be,' she said, in the country, struggling, as Mr. Whittaker had told her, with that violent grudge against the world which had scorned her, sneered at her, cast her off, beginning with this indignity, the infliction of her unlovable body, which people could not bear to see. Do her hair as she might, her forehead remained like an egg, bald, white no clothes suited her. She might buy anything. And for a woman, of course, that meant never meeting the opposite sex. Never would she come first with anyone. Sometimes lately, it had seemed to her that, except for Elizabeth, her food was all that she lived for, her comforts, her dinner, her tea, her hot water bottle at night. But one must fight, vanquish, have faith in God. Mr. Whittaker had said she was there for a purpose, but no one knew the agony. He said, pointing to the crucifix, that God knew. But why should she have to suffer when other women, like Clarissa Dalloway, escaped? Knowledge comes through suffering, said Mr. Whittaker. She had passed the pillar box, and Elizabeth had turned into the cool brown tobacco department of the Army and Navy stores while she was still muttering to herself, what Mr. Whittaker had said about knowledge coming through suffering and the flesh, the flesh she muttered, What department did she want? Elizabeth interrupted her, petticoats she said abruptly, and stalked straight on to the lift. Up they went, Elizabeth guided her this way and that, guided her in her abstraction as if she had been a great child in unwieldy battleship. There were the petticoats, brown decorous striped frivolous solid flimsy and she chose in her abstraction portentously and the girl serving thought her mad elizabeth rather wondered as they did up the parcel what miss kilman was thinking they must have her tea said miss kilman rousing collecting herself they had their tea elizabeth rather wondered whether miss kilman could be hungry It was her way of eating, eating with intensity, then looking again and again at a plate of sugared cakes on the table next to them. Then, when a lady and a child sat down and the child took the cake, could Miss Kilman really mind it? Yes, Miss Kilman did mind it. She had wanted that cake, the pink one. The pleasure of eating was almost the only pure pleasure left her, and then to be baffled even in that when people are happy, they have a reserve, she had told Elizabeth, upon which to draw. Whereas she was like a wheel without a tire, she was fond of such metaphors, jolted by every pebble. So she would say, staying on after the lesson, standing by the fireplace with her bag of books, her satchel, she called it, on a Tuesday morning, after the lesson was over. And she talks, too, about the war. After all, There were people who did not think the English invariably right. There were books. There were meetings. There were other points of view. Would Elizabeth like to come with her to listen to so and so, a most extraordinary looking old man? Then Miss Kilman took her to some church in Kensington, and they had tea with a clergyman. She had lent her books. Law, medicine, politics, all professions are open to women of your generation, said Miss Kilman. But for herself, her career was absolutely ruined, and was it her fault? Good gracious, said Elizabeth. No. And her mother would come calling to say that a hamper had come from Burton, and would Miss Kilman like some flowers? To Miss Kilman, she was always very, very nice. But Miss Kilman squashed the flowers all in a bunch and hadn't any small talk. And what interested Miss Kilman bored her mother and Miss Kilman and she were terrible together, and Miss Kilman swelled and looked very plain. But then Miss Kilman was frightfully clever. Elizabeth had never thought about the poor. They lived with everything they wanted. Her mother had breakfast in bed every day. Lucy carried it up, and she liked old women because they were duchesses, and being descended from some lord. But Miss Kilman said, one of those Tuesday mornings when the lesson was over, my grandfather kept an oil and colour shop in Kensington. Miss Kilman made one feel so small. Miss Kilman took another cup of tea. Elizabeth, with her oriental bearing, her inscrutable mystery, sat perfectly upright. No, she did not want anything more. She looked for her gloves, her white gloves. They were under the table. Ah, but she must not go. Miss Kilman could not let her go. This youth, That was so beautiful, this girl whom she genuinely loved. Her large hand opened and shut on the table. But perhaps it was a little flat somehow, Elizabeth felt, and really she would like to go. But said Miss Kilman, I've not quite finished yet. Of course, then Elizabeth would wait, but it was rather stuffy in here. Are you going to the party tonight? Miss Kilman said. Elizabeth supposed she was going. Her mother wanted her to go. She must not let parties absorb her, Miss Kilman said, fingering the last two inches of a chocolate eclair. She did not much like parties, Elizabeth said. Miss Kilman opened her mouth, slightly projected her chin, and swallowed down the last inches of the chocolate eclair, then wiped her fingers and washed the tea round in her cup. She was about to split asunder, she felt. The agony was so terrific if she could grasp her, if she could clasp her, if she could make her hers absolutely and forever and then die, that was all she wanted. But to sit here, unable to think of anything to say, to see Elizabeth turning against her, to be felt repulsive even by her, it was too much, she could not stand it, the thick fingers curled inwards. I never go to parties, said Miss Kilman, just to keep Elizabeth from going. People don't ask me to parties, and she knew as she said it that it was this egotism that was her undoing. Mr. Whittaker had warned her, but she could not help it. She had suffered so horribly. Why should they ask me? she said. I'm plain, I'm unhappy. She knew it was idiotic, but it was all those people passing, people with parcels who despised her, who made her say it. However, she was Doris Kilman, she had her degree. She was a woman who had made her way in the world. Her knowledge of modern history was more than respectable. I don't pity myself, she said. I pity. She meant to say your mother, but no, she could not, not to Elizabeth. I pity other people, she said, more. Like some dumb creature who has been brought up to a gate for an unknown purpose and stands there longing to gallop away. Elizabeth Dalloway sat silent. Was Miss Kilman going to say anything more? Don't quite forget me, said Doris Kilman. Her voice quivered. Right away to the end of the field, the dumb creature galloped in terror. The great hand opened and shut. Elizabeth turned her head. The waitress came. One had to pay at the desk, Elizabeth said, and went off, drawing out. So Miss Kilman felt the very entrails in her body, stretching them as she crossed the room, and then, with a final twist, bowing her head very politely, she went. She had gone. Miss Kilman sat at the marble table among the eclairs, stricken once, twice, thrice by shocks of suffering. She had gone. Mrs. Dalloway had triumphed. Elizabeth had gone. Beauty had gone. Youth had gone. So she sat, she got up, blundered off among the little tables, rocking slightly from side to side, and somebody came after her with her petticoat, and she lost her way, and was hemmed in by trunks specially prepared for taking to India, through all the accouchement sets and baby linen, through all the commodities of the world, perishable and permanent, hams, drugs, flowers, stationery variously smelling, now sweet, now sour, she lurched, saw herself thus lurching with her hat askew, very red in the face, full length in a looking-glass, and at last came out into the street. The tower of Westminster Cathedral rose in front of her, the habitation of God. In the midst of the traffic, there was the habitation of God. Doggedly, she set off with her parcel to that other sanctuary, the abbey, where, raising her hands in a tent before her face, she sat beside those driven into shelter too. The variously assorted worshippers, now divested of social rank, almost of sex, as they raised their hands before their faces, but once they removed them, instantly reverent, middle class English men and women, some of them desirous of seeing the wax works but Miss Kilman held her tent before her face. Now she was deserted, now rejoined. New worshippers came in from the street to replace the strollers, and still, as the people gazed round and shuffled past the tomb of the unknown warrior, still she barred her eyes from her fingers, and tried in this double darkness, for the light in the abbey was bodiless, to aspire above the vanities, the desires, the commodities to rid herself both of hatred and of love. Her hands twitched. She seemed to struggle. Yet to others God was accessible, and the path to him smooth. Mr. Fletcher, retired of the treasury, Mrs. Gorham, widow of the famous K.C., approached him simply, and having done their praying, leant back, enjoyed the music, the organ pealed sweetly, and saw Miss Kilman at the end of the row, praying, Praying, and being still on the threshold of their underworld, thought of her sympathetically as a soul haunting the same territory, a soul cut out of immaterial substance, not a woman, a soul. But Mr. Fletcher had to go, he had to pass her, and being himself neat as a new pin, could not help being a little distressed by the poor lady's disorder, her hair down, her parcel on the floor. She did not at once let him pass, but as he stood gazing about him at the white marbles, gray window panes, and accumulated treasures, for he was extremely proud of the abbey, her largeness, robustness, and power as she sat there shifting her knees from time to time, it was so rough the approach to her god, so tough her desires, impressed him as they had impressed Mrs. Dalloway. She could not get the thought of her out of her mind that afternoon. The Reverend Edward Whittaker, and Elizabeth too. And Elizabeth waited in Victoria Street for an omnibus. It was so nice to be out of doors. She thought perhaps she need not go home just yet. It was so nice to be out in the air. So she would get on to an omnibus. And already, even as she stood there in her very well-cut clothes, it was beginning people were beginning to compare her to poplar trees early dawn hyacinths fawns running water and garden lilies and it made her life a burden to her for she so much preferred being left alone to do what she liked in the country but they would compare her to lilies and she had to go to parties and london was so dreary compared with being alone in the country with her father and the dogs Buses swooped, saddled, were off, garish caravans, glistening with red and yellow varnish. But which should she get on to? She had no preferences. Of course, she would not push her way. She inclined to be passive. It was expression she needed, but her eyes were fine, Chinese, oriental, and as her mother said, with such nice shoulders and holding herself so straight, she was always charming to look at. And lately, in the evening especially, when she was interested, for she never seemed excited, she looked almost beautiful, very stately, very serene. What could she be thinking? Every man fell in love with her, and she was really awfully bored, for it was beginning. Her mother could see that the compliments were beginning, that she did not care more about it, for instance, for her clothes, sometimes worried Clarissa. But perhaps it was as well with all those puppies and guinea pigs about having distemper, and it gave her a charm. And now there was this odd friendship with Miss Kilman. Well, thought Clarissa about three o'clock in the morning, reading Baron Marbot for she could not sleep. It proves she has a heart. Suddenly Elizabeth stepped forward and most competently boarded the omnibus in front of everybody. She took a seat on top. The impetuous creature, a pirate, started forward, sprang away. She had to hold the rail to steady herself, for a pirate it was, reckless, unscrupulous, bearing down ruthlessly, circumventing dangerously, boldly snatching a passenger, or ignoring a passenger, squeezing eel like and arrogant in between, and then rushing insolently all sails spread up Whitehall. And did Elizabeth give one thought to poor Miss Kilman? who loved her without jealousy, to whom she had been a fawn in the open, a moon in a glade. She was delighted to be free. The fresh air was so delicious. It had been so stuffy in the army and navy stores. And now it was like riding, to be rushing up Whitehall. And to each movement of the omnibus, the beautiful body in the fawn-colored coat responded freely like a rider, like the figurehead of a ship, for the breeze slightly disarrayed her. The heat gave her cheeks the pallor of white painted wood, and her fine eyes, having no eyes to meet, gazed ahead, blank, bright, with the staring incredible innocence of sculpture. It was always talking about her own sufferings that made Miss Kilman so difficult. And was she right? If it was being on committees and giving up hours and hours every day, she hardly ever saw him in London, that helped the poor. Her father did that, goodness knows. If that was what Miss Kilman meant about being a Christian, but it was so difficult to say. Oh, she would like to go a little further. Another penny, was it, to the strand? Here was another penny, then. She would go up the strand. She liked people who were ill. And every profession is open to the women of your generation, said Miss Kilman. So she might be a doctor. She might be a farmer. Animals are often ill. She might own a thousand acres and have people under her. She would go and see them in their cottages. This was Somerset House. One might be a very good farmer, and that, strangely enough, though Miss Kilman had her share in it, was almost entirely due to Somerset House. It looked so splendid, so serious, that great grey building. And she liked the feeling of people working. She liked those churches, like shapes of grey paper. Bursting the stream of the Strand, it was quite different here from Westminster. She thought, getting off at Chancery Lane, it was so serious, it was so busy. In short, she would like to have a profession. She would become a doctor, a farmer, possibly go into Parliament if she found it necessary. All because of the Strand. The feet of those people busy about their activities, hands putting stone to stone, minds eternally occupied not with trivial chatterings comparing women to poplars which was rather exciting of course but very silly but with thoughts of ships of business of law of administration and with it also stately she was in the temple gay there was the river pious there was the church made her quite determined whatever her mother might say to become either a farmer or a doctor but she was of course rather lazy and it was much better to say nothing about it it seemed so silly it was the sort of thing that did sometimes happen when one was alone buildings without architects names crowds of people coming back from the city having more power than single clergymen in kensington than any of the books miss kilman had lent her to stimulate what lay slumberous clumsy and shy on the mine's sandy floor to break surface as a child suddenly stretches its arms. It was just that, perhaps, a sigh, a stretch of the arms, an impulse, a revelation, which has its effects forever, and then down again it went to the sandy floor. She must go home, she must dress for dinner, but what was the time, where was the clock? She looked up Fleet Street. She walked just a little way toward St. Paul's, shyly, like someone penetrating on tiptoe, exploring a strange house by night with a candle, on edge lest the owner should suddenly fling wide his bedroom door and ask her business. Nor did she dare wander off into queer alleys, tempting by streets, any more than in a strange house open doors which might be bedroom doors, or sitting room doors, or lead straight to the larder. For no Dalloways came down the strand daily. She was a pioneer astray, venturing, trusting. In many ways, her mother felt, she was extremely immature, like a child still, attached to dolls, to old slippers, a perfect baby, and that was charming. But then, of course, there was in the Dalloway family the tradition of public service. abbesses, principals, headmistresses, dignitaries, in the Republic of Women, Without being brilliant, any of them they were that she penetrated a little further in the direction of St. Paul's. She liked the geniality sisterhood, motherhood, motherhood of this uproar. It seemed to her good. The noise was tremendous, and suddenly there were trumpets, the unemployed blaring, rattling about in the uproar, military music as if people were marching. Yet had they been dying, had some woman breathed her last and whoever was watching opening the window of the room where she had just brought off that act of supreme dignity looked down on fleet street that uproar that military music would have come triumphing up to him consolatory indifferent it was not conscious there was no recognition in it of one fortune or fate and for that very reason even to those dazed with watching for the last shivers of consciousness on the faces of the dying consoling forgetfulness in people might wound their ingratitude corrode but this voice pouring endlessly year in year out would take whatever it might be this vow this van this light, this procession would wrap them all about and carry them on as in the rough stream of a glacier the ice holds a splinter of bone a blue petal some oak trees and rolls them on. But it was later than she thought. Her mother would not like her to be wandering off alone like this. She turned back down the strand. A puff of wind, in spite of the heat, there was quite a wind, blew a thin black veil over the sun and over the strand. The faces faded. The omnibuses suddenly lost their glow. For although the clouds were of mountainous white, so that one could fancy hacking hardships off with a hatchet, with broad golden slopes, lawns of celestial pleasure gardens, on their flanks, and had all the appearance of settled habitations assembled for the conference of gods above the world. There was a perpetual movement among them. Signs were interchanged. When, as if to fulfill some scheme arranged already, now a summit dwindled, now a whole block of pyramidal size, which had kept its station inalterably advanced into the mist or gravely led the procession to fresh anchorage fixed though they seemed at their posts at rest in perfect unanimity nothing could be fresher freer more sensitive superficially than the snow-white or gold kindled surface to change to go to dismantle the solemn assemblage was immediately possible and in spite of the grave fixity the accumulated robustness and solidity now they struck light to the earth now darkness calmly and competently elizabeth dalloway mounted the westminster omnibus going and coming beckoning signalling so the light and shadow which now made the wall grey now the bananas bright yellow now made the strain grey now made the omnibuses bright yellow seemed to septimus warren smith lying on the sofa in the sitting-room watching the watery gold glow and fade with the astonishing sensibility of some live creature on the roses on the wallpaper outside the trees dragged their leaves like nets through the depths of the air the sound of water was in the room and through the waves came the voices of birds singing every power poured its treasures on his head And his hand lay there on the back of the sofa as he had seen his hand lie when he was bathing floating on the top of the waves while far away on the shore he heard dogs barking and barking far away fear no more says the heart in the body fear no more chapter nine.